live is Christ, and to die is gain. Those are words that we've heard many times before, words that we've read before, words that we've even perhaps claimed before, but words that very few of us have ever lived before. We read a story just a few minutes ago about a young lady named Hannah. Hannah in the Bible, as we all know, had some conflicts in her life. Conflicts that only God could answer. Last week, Sunday morning, we, I preached a message on the need for spiritual leaders in our generation today. The need for people, for young people, for, for elderly people to stand up and to, to be a spiritual leader for God. We have enough worldly leaders today. We have enough politicians. We have enough people leading the masses away from God. We need people today who will stand up and lead people towards God and push people in his name, in his honor, and to serve him with their life. Yes, there is a, there is a great need for spiritual leaders today. But how do we develop a spiritual leader? Where do we begin? When it comes down to trying to push our generation and push people towards God, towards doing things that are right in our world, how do we do that? When do we start and where do we begin? As I've been studying this, these two books, First and Second Samuel, this subject keeps coming up, and I keep finding myself going back to chapter 1 with this concept and with this story and this scenario that God gave to this lady whose name was Hannah. Now, if you will, turn with me to the very beginning of chapter 1. And First Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeph, and Ephrathite. I'm glad we don't introduce ourselves that way anymore. And he had two wives, verse 2, the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Paniah, or Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in, in Shiloh. And the two sons of, ha, of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Benina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversaries also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? Why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul. Hannah was in bitterness of soul. Have you ever been there before? 
and bitterness of soul? Maybe for a teenager, that bitterness of soul is different than when you're an adult. But when you're a teenager, it's still real. You can still go through hard times. There still is depression. There still is things that we struggle with even as a young person. No matter where you are in life, there is always that moment, that time, where we, are, we find ourselves in bitterness of soul. The first thing I want us to look at tonight and understand is the conflict from the past. Hannah had a severe conflict in her past. And this conflict came all the way now to her present. It was a conflict that she had been struggling with her whole life. And for whatever reason it is, God made Hannah to be barren. She was not permitted to have children. She was not allowed to have a family of her own, if you will. And for whatever reason, she's not the only person in the Bible this has happened to, and this is still something that happens today. And for, especially back then, when you consider the family, a, a man's pride was based on his possessions, but most importantly, on the amount of children he had. Boy, that concept has left our society today. Nowadays, it's, oh, I think one, one kid's probably good. Oh, okay, well, I guess we have two now. I, we're going to stop there. I can't even afford the one. How am I going to afford the second? And we almost drudge having a large family back in the Bible days, back in the olden times, and even in some cultures today, that's still a sign of prestige. That, that's the more kids you have, the more happy, the more glorious you are as, as a family. I think there's biblical wisdom in that. But that's not what we're talking about today. A major part of being successful back then was having a family and to not be able to have a child of your own. To me now has become more real than it was the last time I read this passage. A year ago, uh, as I read through the Bible, a year ago when I read 1 Samuel, a year ago today, uh, my wife was seven months pregnant with our first son. And he's back, he's uh, probably hearing him make some noise here in a few minutes, I suppose. He's a noisy one. But a year ago today, as I read this passage, it didn't mean as much as it does now. It's amazing how the Bible adapts, not that it changes, and don't, don't, don't misinterpret what I'm saying, but it, the Bible adapts to our scenario. It, it, it helps us as we progress through, the, uh, through life. And what you read a passage once, and you think, oh, I've already read that passage before. I'm not going to get anything out of it. Well, the last time you read it, your life has changed a little bit. And God has more for you in his word. That's why there's importance of reading his word constantly. And as I, as I come around to this chapter again, I began to realize Hannah and her desire to have a son. And, you know, before I had a kid, I didn't understand the, 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 the implications of that, what that meant, and the, why she was such an agony over it. When, when you're a kid and you look at other kids, and kids are just kids. Okay, you don't have a kid, big deal, who cares? I remember the day when... I saw for the first time my son, just seconds after, uh, after he was born and holding him, I, I was able to be the first one to hold him, and uh, he had so much hair on his head, I was kind of confusing at first, I suppose, but as I'm holding him there in that moment, just everything changes. Everything in your life changes. Nothing is the same anymore. When you're holding your son, your son, not someone else's, this is... This is your responsibility. Your life is just different. And now going back, if I had to erase these last year of my life and to not have my son, I don't, I don't know that I, I don't know what my life would be like. 
because it's changed so much. And now I, as, I, as I try to sympathize with Hannah, I'm able to do so a little bit more. Hannah here has a great burden, and that is simply to, well, she's got two burdens. I'm going to share those with you today. And in her conflict from the past, she was barren, but she was also burdened with something. And as you look in verse number 6, we already read it, but the Bible says that she had adversaries that would provoke her sore. The next verse implies that this person is a girl. Most people would imply that it was her, her husband's other wife. And this lady who was able to have children, and she had all the children for her husband Elkanah. Elkanah loved Hannah more, yet Hannah could not have children. And the other wife, Peniah, she would come and she would provoke her. She would make fun of her. She would almost bully her, if you will, and make her feel even worse than what she was. And she found herself, every year they would go to Shiloh to worship God. She found herself just pleading with God to give her a son. Interesting, her conflict, I believe, is what led her to her effectual, fervent praying. Her conflict is what draw and increased, uh, brought her closer to God. Maybe it's difficult to rejoice in conflict when you're in the midst of it, but I suggest that we learn to rejoice after it is done. Learn to rejoice in the conflicts that God has given us. Not that it's easy to rejoice. Not that I would expect Job to be so happy that he lost everything in that moment. But I have no doubts that after it was all said and done, and after he looks back on it, he no doubt would say to, at, one more, at one point in his life, Lord, I have no idea why you did that. But thank you for where I'm at. Thank you for getting me through that. I am not the same Job that I was before this happened. Conflicts arise in our life, and God oftentimes allows it to happen to draw us closer to God. Some of the conflicts we have make no sense. Lord, why, why wouldn't you do that, a conflict that, but a little less or a little different? Why would you do it that way? It's not our job to try to figure out the mind of God, because <laughs> you never will. All we have to study God's mind is his book. But we can learn to rejoice through it all. And it was because of this conflict from her past, she finds herself on her knees and begging God. Which brings us to not just a conflict from her past, but the condition of the present. The condition of the world that Hannah was living in, you have to understand something. Now, when you think thousands of years ago, you think times were much simpler back then, right? And I suppose to an extent they were. They didn't have social media. They didn't have technology that we have today. But times, just because maybe we're different in our age, doesn't mean that times were simpler back then. I want us to understand the condition that Hannah was living in, in her world. You're in 1 Samuel, look in chapter 2, and look in verse 12. In 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 12... The Bible says, now the sons of Eli, first of all, I think most of us know, but Eli is the high priest at this time. When it comes to being in charge, I mean, when people had a question, when people didn't know what to do, they went to the high priest at this time. There were no kings back then. There was judges and then there was the high priest. Eli was basically the spiritual leader of the nation of Israel. So if people had a problem, they would go to Eli. He was kind of the head, the head guy at this time. It was Eli. So this is the high priest Eli, but look in verse 12. The sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. 
And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh of uh, three teeth in his hand. And I'll, we won't go through what basically the priest, when they would sacrifice, they actually were allowed to eat portions of, of the sacrifice that was given to them under certain circumstances. But these men, these sons of Eli, were abusing their power. And they were enforcing laws that were not ought to be. And it got so bad. Look in verse 17. Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. It got so bad that nobody even wanted to go and offer sacrifices to God anymore. Men started abhorring that which was supposed to be righteous and holy in the sight of God. The leader of that age, Eli, though he seems to be a man of faith, a man that loved the Lord, had no control over his children, and for whatever reason happened, his children ran wild, and his predecessors, those that were supposed to come up and take his place someday, were nothing next to holy, were nothing near holy, nothing near righteous in the sight of God. In fact, they were so wicked, they were turning people away from God. Hypocrites, if you will. We have a lot of those in church, in churches around our world, and the message is not directed towards this, but we do have a lot of people today who are drawn away from God because of someone who claims to be a Christian and yet lives their life nothing for God. We have parents that come to church every once in a while and uh, they'll say amen and they'll shake the pastor's hand and they'll, uh, they'll talk to the Bible with them and make themselves feel good and they drive home and they live their lives nothing near God. And then kids grow up watching this and think, that's what Christianity is? I want nothing to do with that. And we wonder why sometimes our kids grow up and are so far from God, as if they'd never been to church in their life. I mean, you wonder what happened. And in this case, it starts back in the home. I don't know what kind of lifestyle Eli lived at home. I, I pray that it was something holy to God, but something obviously went wrong for his children to turn so far from God. Something happened here. You understand the condition of the present world that Hannah was living in was not a condition that you or I would want to live in. Unfortunately, though, it sounds very similar to the world we're living in today. If you look in verse 22 of the same chapter, 1 Samuel 2 and verse 22, it gets worse. It says, Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. It's not even that, but they, they weren't just messing around with the, the priestly order of sacrifice, but they were committing fornication, adultery with, with women who were outside the temple, who were supposed to be helping and, and serving and cleaning in the church, and they were defiling other of God's chosen people. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want those young men to take up the reign of high priests and to rule and to judge my country. You understand the condition that Hannah was living in was not a spiritual condition that you or I would ever desire, that we would ever want. Eli tries to tame his sons here at near the end of his life. In verse 23, he asks them this question, why do, you, why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all these people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. He's trying to, to draw his children back, but it's way too late. He's trying way too late in life. His sons are grown now, and they've already been living this lifestyle for so long. Eli should have started this much, much further, much further back in their life. But whatever, the ha whatever happens, we understand this, that the condition of the world that Hannah was living in was not a spiritual one. It was declining very rapidly. Does that sound familiar? We live in the world, we live in a world today where our leaders are so far from God. 
not every leader. There are some politicians that, that have their eyes on Christ. There are some leaders that are, that are still fighting for what is right. But you look at the majority, the percentage, the percentage of people, and then you sometimes you observe their children. And you wonder, are they going to take their place someday? What's going to happen to our world 100 years from now, or 10 years from now, 5 years from now? What's going to happen? Where, where is our world heading today? You understand something? The farther we get away from God, the closer we get to ourselves. And that is not a good place to be. Because in it of ourselves is the flesh, is the devil, is sin, it's corruption, it's vileness, it's things unholy from God. That's what God tells us to separate from ourselves and separate from the world and cling unto Christ because he is the author of holiness and righteousness, not in of ourselves. And the further we get away from God, our eyes start to change onto the world and onto ourselves, and we find a spiritual declining yet again in our world today. John Newton. Sound familiar? Author of Amazing Grace. He was, a, uh, he was an author. He gives three chief causes to national spiritual decay in our world today. He says, looking at a, at a nation... Looking at, at a society that falls away from God, there's three main errors that takes place to see a nation fall away from God. The first one is perhaps the chiefest cause, the spiritual decline, is simply error. False, fake, phonies, error, things that are not true. Like the Galatians, by listening to false teachers, they were seduced from the simplicity of the gospel. Paul spent so much of his time fighting against error in our world, error in our churches, error in our doctrine, error in our spiritual lives. Poison is seldom taken alone, but if mixed with food, it is not suspected until it is discovered by its effect. No one takes bleach and pounds it down, but if you were to take poison and slip it into something, something where you wouldn't smell, you wouldn't know it was there, you wouldn't know you had drank in that poison until its effect had taken its toll on our lives. Whoever is prevailed upon to believe what is false, though it is mixed with the truth, is already infected with the disease. And his religion, unless the Lord mercifully interposes, will degenerate into either lasciviousness or formality. What does that mean? It means today so many churches, so many Christians are mixing truth with poison. They're mixing truth with perhaps their own ideas and their own philosophies. And I'd like to challenge you today to be careful with the internet. Be careful with YouTube. Be careful with these religious leaders on television. Be careful. They, they, they have a form of godliness, but many of them deny the power thereof. Many of them are speaking their own ideas and their own philosophies, and they may even show you a verse that may back up their beliefs, but be very careful by who you listen to. Be very careful. Always go back to God and His Word. We live in a day and age where too many people are tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine. Therefore, those who want what is best for their own souls must be on their guard against that spirit of curiosity and adventure which the apostle described as having itching ears which a desire of hearing every new and novel teaching so many people they have this adventurous idea and they want to explore this and explore that and they find themselves away from God and error is one of the largest causes of a downfall of spiritual decline in a nation it's simply error John Newton he explains another one here. He says, spiritual pride and a high regard for self 
is another major cause of spiritual decline. Christians who start to feel good about themselves, they feel like they're something now, and this spiritual pride, even if a person believes right doctrine and has experienced the power of the gospel in their life, pride causes spiritual decline. If our knowledge and gifts give us a good opinion of ourselves, as if we were wise and good, we are already ensnared and in danger of falling with every step we take, unless the Lord interposes humility and dependence on him. We have nothing but what we receive from God. And therefore, to be proud of titles, wealth, or temporary advantages we enjoy by the province of God is sinful. We get so contempt, we reach a stage of spirituality, and we think we're fine, we get contempt, and then we find ourselves looking down on the rest of the world thinking, oh, you're not at my level, and you're not at my level, and spiritual pride can bring a nation down. And the third thing John Newton mentions here is a prevailing cause for spiritual decline is an inordinate desire and attachment to the things of the world or worldliness. Christianity gets contempt with with, uh, we have our eyes on Christ at one point in our life, but our eyes glance off at the world and we think, oh, that's nice. And we find ourselves falling away from God. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow progression. Our world doesn't just change overnight. It starts to change overnight. But it's not until years later you look back and think, how did I get here? In whatever degree the love of the world prevails the health of the soul will proportionally decline. Greed, covetousness, whatever happens in our world today, the world that Hannah was living in in the Bible was a world of spiritual decay. Her spiritual leaders were falling. They were either getting older, they were about to, they were about to decease and go up into eternity, and those after them were nothing, were nothing like the leaders that we had before. Maybe today you remember when you were a kid, some spiritual giants in your life, people you looked up to, people you used to listen to preach, people you loved and respected, people that were causing uh, hundreds and thousands and millions of people to draw unto Christ, and you remember those days. Where are those leaders today? Where are they? We have people who are leading hundreds and thousands of millions of people away from God without even trying. But where are the spiritual leaders of our world today? Hannah had a problem. She had a burden, yes, to have a son, but I feel like this burden may have gone a little bit farther for her. Hannah knew the world that she was living in. Hannah knew that, and she would go to the temple. You read the story, she knew Eli. She'd spoken to him before. No doubt, she knew the decline. Men knew about Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. He knew that they were not pleasing to God. And it became so bad, like I said already, that the people did not even want to come to the temple and worship anymore. People were already finding themselves away from God. And I have no doubt that there were many people who would get up every day and say, God, please raise up a leader. Because, Lord, I don't want Eli's sons to do it. I don't want them to do it. God, please raise up somebody who can grab the torch and lead our nation to spiritual victory. I have no doubt that there was many people in this day and age, back in Hannah's time, that was begging God to please change their world around. But I wonder how many of those people asked for that person to be themselves. 
I wonder how many parents in Hannah's day said, Lord, please allow my son to be the one to lead Israel to victory, to spiritual victory. Allow my son to be given wholly unto you. Lord, use my children for your honor and glory. I wonder how many of them said, Lord, send that person to do it. Lord, you could send anyone you like. Uh, just perhaps, if you need to, you can use mine. But I'd prefer maybe someone else. I wonder how many, of, how many parents, how many children at this time were waking up in the morning saying, Lord, our nation is in spiritual decay. God, could you use me to make a difference? C could I be the one to change? Could I be the one to help our nation follow God? Could I be the one to push the eyes of everyone back to you? Lord, could you allow me to be that person? So many of us pray for our nation, but so few of us actually are willing to do much about it. And then Hannah prays his prayer. In verse 11 of chapter 1, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child. Now had she stopped right there, this would have been a much different story. She said, Lord, if you can give me a child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. She didn't say, Lord, if you give me a child, I'll let him, I'll let him serve you for a couple years. I'll uh, give him the option of, um, if he wants to serve you with his life, I will, I will push him in that direction. She said, Lord, if you give me a son, I will make sure that I will do everything in my power for him to serve you with all his life, with everything. But will give unto thine handmaid a man-child. Then I will give, unto, give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. That's speaking of the, the, the Nazarite. Basically, what she's trying to say is, Lord, perhaps she saw the way the world was going. She saw the nation that was around her, and perhaps she looked up and said, Lord, I would sure like a son, but God, I would also like to be a part of seeing my nation be spiritually revived. And Lord, if that requires you to take my son and to do so, so be it. Lord, take my son. Now, when I, when I read this a year ago, or the last time I read it, I thought, that's a moving story. That's great. But now that I have a son, <laughs> now you know the story. I don't have to go through it with you. God gives her a son. His name is Samuel. And she did, not go to the, she did not go to Shiloh that, that year or the year after. She waited till Samuel was weaned, till Samuel did not need his mother uh, to feed him anymore, till Samuel could eat on his own without his mother's need. So most people estimate Samuel to be about two years old when Hannah finally brought her two-year-old only son unto God and brought Samuel unto the Lord. And the day came where she placed her only two-year-old son and said, Lord keeping my promise. Lord, there's my son. Lord, I want you to have my son. You see, Hannah had a, she had a condition of her past, and the condition simply was that she could not have children. She had a, she had a, 
a desire to see that her nation change for God. She realized that the, the world that she was living in was not a world that was near God, which, gave, which allowed her to have a concern for the future. Perhaps so when Hannah, she brought her son to God and said, Lord, here's my precious son, my only son. Lord, take him. Hannah wasn't just trying to test God. What could Hannah possibly gain by saying, Lord, give me a son, and then I'm just going to give him right back to you? What could she gain from that? Like taking spiritual things out of it, physically speaking, let's be the world right now. What could Hannah gain from that? It's like saying, Lord, help me to win a million dollars, and I'm just going to give it all away. Does it make you feel good? Did she want a son just to make herself feel good so she can get the adversaries off her back? Is that all she wanted? You see, she didn't realize that later on she would get more kids. She didn't know that. She didn't know that was coming. She gave her only boy, her only son. What could Hannah possibly gain from this except that perhaps she had an even stronger burden? Not just to have a son, but to make a difference in the world. But to say, Lord, another reason, God, I want a son is so that I can give him back to you. Lord, I want to help our nation. I see it's to spiritual decay. And Lord, I desire that you would give me somebody, give me a child that I can see live for you. And perhaps when that prayer was heard to God, it's when God said, okay, I can bless that. Because God sure needed someone. You read the spiritual decay of Israel this time, there was not very many people who were willing to serve God. There was not very many people who were raising their hands. In fact, all throughout Judges, you don't see that happening. God had to go to them. He had to find them in a wine press. Remember Gideon? Hey, I see you there. Yeah, stand up. Yeah, I need you to come over here. Yeah, I need you to help lead an army. Now, I know you don't think you're much. I know you're afraid to talk in front of people. But I need you. And Gideon said, okay. I, he didn't say it quite like that. He had a couple fleeces in there, and he had a couple of prayers and a couple of fastings, and finally he was able to have the courage to do it. But he did it. There was a great need for spiritual leaders. And when Hannah said, Lord, if you give me my son, I'll give you one of those, God says, I'll take that, because I need that. Hannah now giving her only son. And the Bible says that she only went to see her son once a year. And every year she'd come back to Shiloh, to, to the temple. They say it was about 20, 25 miles away from where they were from. Now, you know, today that's no problem. Jump in a car, drive all the 20 miles in Surrey. That's going to take like six hours in, in rush hour, I suppose. But for them to walk 20 miles, it wasn't a small walk. Every year she would come back to Shiloh to, to see her son. She would remake him a new a new ephod, like a, a new coat. She would make him something and re-give it to Samuel. And that was really the only time she would see her son. She knew the world she was living in, the Belial of their leadership. The desperation for a godly leader was no doubt a prayer of many during this time, but no one was willing to let that leader be them or their own. No one except a Hannah. The plea of most parents today is for someone else to make a difference for God, for someone else to do something great. Hannah knew her world was in turmoil and needed someone to make a difference. It wouldn't be an easy job. It wouldn't be a high-paying job. But it would be the most necessary and eternally rewarding job that anybody could ever have. Sometimes the path that God leads us 
that God desires for us isn't, in the world's eyes, the most successful. But if we're living our life for ourselves, living our lives to be successful here on earth, what kind of success is that going to bring in eternity? We get so caught up. I've used this illustration before uh, in teen class or at camp. I don't really have anything because I wasn't prepared on using it. But this is a really poor example here. But this pen right here could be an example of our life. This is eternity. Now, eternity goes forever. You could, you could take this... Uh, you could, you could take the wall here, the, the red strip of the wall. It just continues on and on. It goes on forever and ever. Eternity never, never, it never ends. And if this is eternity, this, uh, let's see if this pen works here. It's not working here. If we have eternity here, let's see if this one works. All right. Oh, here we go. You probably can't see it, can you? See this thought up here? Anybody? Okay. It's very faint. We live our life, eternity is forever long, and yet we live our lives for this little speck right here. That, that's the life you're living right now. Maybe 70 years, maybe you live to be 100. And that's about the distance of 100 years, and in reality, to all the eternity that you're going to be living. We live our lives to succeed in this little speck, this little dot in our life. And yet when you die, <laughs> you have all of eternity. And what we do during this dot on our life is what's going to last for eternity. So many of us are, are, are living our lives, we're training the next generation to, to focus on self. They ask, uh, mom or dad, what, 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 what would happen if I went to this occupation? If your first words are, that doesn't pay very much, what are you teaching them? Are you developing in them a, a life to live for God? Well, I, I wouldn't go there. That's not going to help you very much. That's not going to pay. That's a hard one to get into. No, uh, I wouldn't do that. You get a lot of persecution there. The plea for most parents is not Hannah's plea. Samuel, ha Samuel had no doubts what he was to live his life for. When he was growing up, he knew without a doubt, wow, I, I, I'm here to serve God. My mom made that very clear. And Samuel still had a choice. He didn't have, he could have rebelled. Hophni and Phinehas did. His dad was the high priest. But Samuel knew that his mom gave everything so that he can serve God. And guess what he did? He wasn't concerned about putting him in a school that would pay him the biggest, and give him the biggest chance to land a high-paying career job. That wasn't the, Hannah's goal. Her goal was to see her nation change for God. What is your desire for your kids? As parents, what is your true desire? Hey, kids, teenagers, young adults, what is your desire in your life? Do you have a desire to see our world, our world have their eyes get fixated on Christ? Are you content with them walking right past Christ each and every day? We need to have some people who have a concern for the future. You see, Hannah, she gave her boy. She didn't just give her boy, but I want you to understand this concept. Hannah gave her best. Her best. She didn't just give some change. She gave her best. God doesn't just want our spare time. He wants our precious time. God doesn't just want to hold the... God doesn't want to just be in charge of the spare tire of our car. He wants to be in charge of our steering wheel. God... In life, he's looking for somebody who will offer themselves up unto, unto him, yet so few people are willing to be that person. 
Hannah was not content with giving God just a little bit, but she gave God her absolute best. And now as I have a son, I honestly don't know that I can give my two-year-old away. Now, we don't have institutions like that where we could donate your two-year-old and they can grow up and serve the Lord. I guess they probably have something like that somewhere similar. These are different times. Want to know what kind of times they were? There were times very similar to Esther's time. Do you remember Esther 4? For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther was confused. She didn't know what to do. She was nervous to stand before the king. She might be killed. Mordecai had to look at Esther and say, perhaps you are here right now for such a time as this. You can, do, you can make a difference that no one else can make. Samuel was desperately needed, but there would have never been a Samuel had there never been a faithful Hannah. Maybe you've heard this song before. Give of your best to the master. Give of the strength of your youth. Clad in salvation's full armor, join in the battle for truth. Give of your best to the master. Give him first place in your heart. Give him first place in your service. Consecrate every part. Give and to you will be given. God his beloved son gave. Gratefully seeking to serve him. Give him the best that you have. We don't mind giving money to the Lord when we get a bonus check. But when things aren't looking good, all of a sudden, we don't have the faith to do it. Hannah gave her boy. Hannah gave her best to God. And lastly, because of this, she was blessed. God blessed her. You read in verse 21, you find in chapter 2 that she was given three sons and two more daughters after this. She didn't know that was coming. God blessed her above more than she could ever possibly imagine. And then if you read in chapter 2, verses 1 through, uh, what is it, 1 through 10, we see a praise that Hannah gets on her knees and praises God for allowing her to give her son to God. She praises God, say, Lord, thank you for the son you've given me. This praise happens after she had just given her son to God. <laughs> Hannah didn't say, Lord, thank you for my son as she conceived, although I'm sure she did. But this prayer here given in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving happens right after she came back from Shiloh, right after she dropped her son off and said, son, I'll see you next year. Serve God with your life. It is at that moment where she praised God. She praised God that she was given the opportunity to make a difference in her world. That she had the opportunity to let somebody serve God with their life. That's when she praised God. And because of this, God blessed her beyond measure. She was given five more children. She gave without the intention of receiving, which is the essence of giving. Giving without desire for compensation. Most people give hoping to receive, but that's not true giving. The kind of person that God's looking for is somebody who's willing to give of themselves and not really require anything in return. Many times we only give for the compensation. Now God does promise to compensate us. If we do give unto him, God promises to bless us in return. If we step out in faith, if we seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things shall be added unto us. He does promise that, and we can claim those promises to God. But, uh, but if our purpose for giving 
It should not be to receive, but it should, the purpose for giving should be to give. That's the least we can do for all that he's done for God. How do we train up a spiritual leader? It starts with the parent. It starts with the kid, even before that kid is conceived. It starts beforehand, before that child is born. Lord, when you give us a son, when you give us a daughter, may our daughter, may our son live for you. May our son and daughter not live for us, not, not necessarily do everything that we say, though I want them to obey us, but Lord, I want them to ultimately focus their attention on you. Maybe you have a son or daughter who's older now. Maybe you started late. It's still not too late to give them to God, to ask God to use them, to be willing. But here's the catch. Samuel had a good example to live up to. Not necessarily Eli. Samuel could easily give himself to God because he had a mom that did the same thing. He had a mom. He had a personal example to look to and saw how she was willing to give God her best. We're lacking spiritual leaders today because we don't have any examples to show them how to be one. So my challenge to you is simple. We need spiritual leaders. But will you be the spiritual leader? In your home. In your life. Before you can lead your family, you have to learn to lead yourself. Where is your heart at right now? And where, how close are you to God? Because remember, the farther away we get from God, the closer we get to ourself. So ask yourself, wow, how far away am I from God? And the closer you get to God, the better of a chance you have of making a difference. Maybe not in the whole world. Maybe in your world, in your circle, in your home. Maybe in your ministry at church, or maybe in your job. You know, maybe one person can't make a difference in the whole world, but if every person does their part, then we can make a difference then we can reach this world for Christ. So I challenge you today, be a Hannah and allow God to use you to reach your life and the lives to come for his honor and his glory.